you know, Catholic, like I grew up um, in a Catholic family. Uh, initially, I was baptized Catholic, and then we started going to uh, Protestant church when I was about five. Uh, but all of my extended family are still uh, Catholics. And so uh, a Catholic may see this and, and say, okay, well, this proves what we've known all along, that the Catholic church is the one true church. So booyah, all y'all are wrong. Um, and Protestants may say, well, this, is, this thing is not really worth confessing because it talks about Catholics. So uh, what's the point? So on both sides, there's, uh, there's a lot of room for confusion. I think um, we're missing really what the, the simple definition of Catholic is and what's true to the original intent of the authors who put the creed together is that Catholic simply means universal, as several of our elders have mentioned early on uh, when we introduced the creed. So how is the church universal? Well, the church, the church is universal in the sense that there is one true church, but it doesn't belong to any one sect or denomination. It's all of God's people, the entire church, throughout all space, throughout all time, throughout the whole space-time continuum, if you like sci-fi. There's always been one church that existed from the beginning and into eternity. Uh, the church is also universal in the sense that it's really a microcosm of our society. In the church, you find rich, you find poor, you find people from all ethnicities, races, backgrounds, genders, and uh, the church is, uh, as Paul says, uh, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, um, Jew nor Gentile, because all are one in Christ Jesus. And so the best picture of this in scripture that we have is Revelations 7, 9 through 10. Uh, just a beautiful image here of what the church is and what it will be when we're finally together with God in all his glory. And it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yeah, I like a lot of feedback, so feel free to say amen fervently. And if you don't say that, then I might have to prompt you to say it so I don't feel so alone up here. What a beautiful uh, picture of God's people, right, that we see in Revelation. Uh, the church is universal. It states there very clearly, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, really made me want to go into missions. Uh, for those who don't know, that, that's kind of my, my day job. It's a missionary with literacy and evangelism, international. And uh, we're always looking for new recruits. And uh, this is really one of the verses that, that impacted me when I read this in, Revelations, uh, in Revelation and saw, okay, this is God's plan. <laughs> he wants people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Obviously, there are many unreached people groups. There are many unengaged people groups. There are many unreached, unengaged people groups that have really never had any gospel exposure, or very limited. And so if this is God's heart, we want to do our part to make that happen. Uh, but that's what the church is. Uh, it's universal, and that's what, in that way, it's, it's Catholic. Uh, this doesn't leave any room, really, for uh, division in the church. We see everyone will be unified. It definitely doesn't leave any room for racism in the church, um, although, unfortunately, there has been racism historically in the church. It doesn't leave any room for, um, for self-ambition 
or for um, any type of superiority complex in the church, you see this is, this is uh, the church. It's God and all of us on the same equal playing field worshiping him. It doesn't mean that race doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that uh, gender doesn't matter. Obviously, it does. God created those things, and those differences are to be celebrated. But when we come before God, we come before God as the universal church. Um, a divisive Christian is an oxymoron. A racist Christian is also an oxymoron. It, it can't be. Um, the church is also Catholic in the sense that it unites people that have eternal life. Um, Adam shared with me a, a good book that kind of spelled out this idea that uh, the church is, is universal uh, in the sense that God really treats his people in two different categories, uh, which is kind of a hard pill to swallow. Uh, but we see all throughout Scripture that God has his church, his people, and then basically everybody else. Those are the two simple categories uh, as far as God relating to humanity. Um, besides the church, the other names that you'll hear are uh, the people of God, the children of Israel, uh, friends of God, members of Christ's body. Um, Jesus, when he's talking to, hey, Edith. Well, I got an iPad, so I can't make notes with that pen. Thanks. <laughs> um, Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, John 8, he says, uh, really, there are two types of people. You know, there's people who have God as their father, and there are people who have the devil as their father. He says, if Abraham were your father, then God would be your father. But since God's not your father, your father is naturally the devil. And again, that's a really hard um, pill to swallow as, as humans. We kind of want everything to be fair for everybody all the time. But this is how God abuse uh, humanity. Uh, there are his people, his chosen people. Uh, the elect is another term that's used. And they're the people that God has chosen to be his people, his church, throughout all time, throughout all space. The theologian Bon Myers says, uh, the message of the gospel is directed not primarily to individuals, but to this new community, i.e. the church. God's plan of salvation all along has been to create one human society as the bearer of the divine image. In that sense, the church isn't just the way people respond to salvation. The church is salvation. The church is what God has been doing in the world from the beginning. Uh, and this is the point where I started to get really excited thinking about the church. Just, this is God's plan. This is God's design. He wanted us to be the church. So um, breaking down the Apostles' Creed declaration that we're looking at even more, uh, let's talk about the sanctity of the church. The holy Catholic church, in which way is the church holy? 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 through 5, we won't read it, the whole thing, but basically it's saying that uh, you, Peter's saying to the believers, you are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. All these stones together being built up into the household of God. And then he calls, uh, calls him a royal priesthood. The church is to be a, a collection of these living stones built up together into God's house, a royal priesthood. Uh, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 says, For through him, Christ, talking about Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, we see this, this word, um, sorry, my wife's texting me. Oh, the word Catholic means universal. <laughs> uh, I guess you wanted to, me to reiterate that. Um, okay, so we see that the, the fellow citizens, saints, members of God's household are basically being joined together, like we saw in 1 Peter 2, uh, to form this holy temple in the Lord. Uh, it's holy because it's built by God's Spirit. It's holy because He's the one building it. It's not holy because every single person uh, within the church is, uh, is holy and has never sinned, but God makes us holy. We are fellow citizens. We are saints. We are members of God's household. He's the one building us uh, up to be His body. So in that way, the church is holy. The sanctity of the saints now, how are the saints holy? Uh, this is also a concept that can be confusing uh, because we know just by our own empirical observations of ourselves that we're not saints always. Uh, we're constantly messing up, falling short, and missing the mark. I remember the first time when I was uh, 16 years old, I went to West Oak Lane Church of God in North Philly. It was an all-African-American church. I was the only white boy there, and I, one of the first things that, that really um, shocked me, uh, besides being the only one who was white, was that all the uh, elders and the deacons and the preachers, they were, they were referring to everyone as saints. They say, good morning, saints, come on in, saints, praise the Lord, saints, are you ready to worship God, saints? And that really struck me as weird, because it's like, all right, is everybody a saint here? You know, I... The image we have of saints is like, you know, a, a, a monk who lives out in a cave and spends 10 hours a day praying and who has never said a curse word the whole life or a cuss word if you're in the South. That's a saint, right? Uh, we even talk about, you know, we're not saints, we're sinners. <laughs> Sorry, I got angry, man. I'm not a saint. Uh, that's kind of our common language, right? But uh, God is the one who makes us holy. And I think we can understand this concept better by breaking it into two different categories. The first one is uh, what we would call positional holiness or positional sanctification. And the second one is progressive holiness or progressive sanctification. Uh, so what does that mean? Positional holiness. How are the saints holy? How are we holy even though we're sinners? Well, we're holy because God makes us holy, uh, plain and simple. It's a positional sanctification is, is a fixed uh, predetermined position by God that he uh, imposes on us, quite literally. He dresses us with the righteousness of Christ. So it's a done deal. Uh, Hebrews 10.10 10 says, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Once and for all. God has done it. In Archonese, he done did it. So that's, that's positional uh, sanctification. Um, first, when we talk about progressive sanctification, uh, I'm just going to read this quote here from another author because he said it so well. Progressive sanctification makes us practically, over time, what we've already been declared to be. Don't you like that? It 
God makes us practically over time what we've already been declared to be. The Holy Spirit and we working together to give increasing victory over sin and to become more like Christ. And um, a backing verse for that, Hebrews 10, 14 from that same passage, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. So that the grammar there is uh, present progressive, uh, like I am doing, I am walking. It's uh, a process, an action that's currently happening. We are in the process of being sanctified. It's progressive. And then First uh, Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That, that's God's will for us, our sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And it goes on to list a whole other list of sins that we should abstain from. But here we see kind of the, the tension or the balance that... God is the one working out our salvation, yet uh, Paul says, this is the will of God for your salvation. You abstain from sexual immorality. And uh, we see that God uh, and we working together uh, produce this sanctification process. Of course, it's God who works in us first, which is why we worked. Um, You know, I've heard several times before, um, you know, the scripture, God, we love before because God first loved us, and we could apply the same thing here. We work towards sanctification because God first worked in us. We worked because he first worked in us. So um, the church is universal. It's Catholic. It's holy. It's made up of sinners who have been turned saints. Thanks be to God. You ought to say amen right there. He's made us saints. And uh, now we're going to look at this uh, concept of communion, the communion of the saints. And uh, really the main point I want us to uh, grasp here is that God uses us, his church, to reveal himself and to accomplish his will. God uses us, his church, to reveal himself and accomplish his will. And I'm going to explain what communion has to do with that. Uh, One time someone asked me to preach in Guatemala. I'm used to preaching in Spanish, actually, not English. (laughs) So uh, one time a guy asked me to preach in Guatemala about communion. And so I started preparing, um, you know, some texts for communion, like the Lord's Supper. And then I clarified with them because I started thinking, okay, comunión. There's another word in Spanish that they usually use for the Lord's Supper, which is la Santa Cena, the Holy Supper. So I clarified. He said, said, no, I want you to talk about fellowship, you know, unity, communion. I was like, I knew that, just clarifying. (coughs) So... God uses us, his church, to reveal himself and accomplish his will. Can we read that together? God uses us, his church, to reveal himself and accomplish his will. Now, this is a huge topic, and I'll only be able to kind of scratch the tip of the surface here. But I think um, we're continually tempted to undervalue the, the role of the church in God's plan. We're continually tempted to undervalue the importance of the church in what God wants to do here on earth. The church is, is God's chosen instrument. Uh, we talked about it before. It's his plan since the beginning of time to create a people for himself. Uh, the church is also an incredibly uh, powerful institution. It's the largest organization in the world, over 2.4 billion Members. Some people estimate that it's uh, as high as 2.8 billion people right now. 
the church has the largest network of any other institution on planet Earth. The church can be quickly mobilized with a volunteer force to accomplish virtually anything. The church is God's chosen instrument that he uses. How does he use the church? Well, uh, two things we're going to talk about. The first is God uses the church to reveal the mystery of his nature. God uses the church to reveal the mystery of his nature. What is his nature? His nature is communion. We declare the communion of the saints because God in his nature exists in communion. He exists in fellowship. Um, when my wife Emily and I were engaged to be married, we did our premarital counseling with um, Pastor Don Irwin, a great pastor, a covenant Presbyterian in Russellville. And he gave us a book to read, and the first chapter was all about the Trinity of God. It was a marriage book. It was all about the Trinity. And I was thinking, why are we reading about the Trinity? I need some like practical Christian tips for how to be an awesome husband. But we're reading about the Trinity instead. And, uh, and then there was this light bulb moment where uh, the author was describing how God has always existed before the beginning of time in fellowship with himself. Even before the world was created, there was God the Father, there was God the Son, there was God the Holy Spirit, and all three parts just kind of living together in this perfect love triangle. Love triangle in a good sense. <laughs> a love triangle of, of this communion, this fellowship, this intimacy. Um, the dictionary definition that I found of communion, um, two of them that I'll read, one is uh, communion is intimate fellowship or rapport. Another definition says communion is the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a spiritual level. This is the kind of communion that we're talking about. This is God's very nature. It's his very essence. He is a triune God, three persons in one. It's one of the greatest mysteries, which is why we always joke about how all the, the Trinity analogies break down over time. Uh, because we just can't fathom the mystery of God. But what he uses to, to somehow give people a glimpse of that is the church. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Thank you. You ought to say amen. Do you get the sense that there's this theme of unity here? One God, one spirit, one Lord. They're all working together in this perfect communion, in this perfect harmony. And Paul is urging us, commanding us as the church, to strive for that same unity in the Spirit, uh, which we know is going to take, what does he mention? He says it's going to take humility. <laughs> this is not going to be an easy task, y'all. It's going to take humility. It's going to take gentleness. It's going to take patience. It's going to take bearing with each other in love. But the goal that we're striving for is this unity in the Spirit. Why? Because it reflects the nature of God and the unity of His triune fellowship. When people see this, 
it's really uh, mind-boggling. There's something so attractive about seeing people hanging out together, loving each other, who are blue-collar and white-collar and white and black and Latino and Asian and all different socioeconomic uh, strata that they come from, and yet they're fellowshipping together. They truly, genuinely love one another. Not because it's been easy. <laughs> there have been some hurdles to overcome, but because they've been walking with each other in humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love. First um, Corinthians 12, 12 through 20 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Are you guys hearing the word one, one, one over, over and over again? Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. He chose it. He arranged it. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And here we see this beautiful, undeniable picture of, of the unity of Christ's body, despite all the diversity, the complexity of all the different parts working together with different functions. And there's this firm affirmation to us as his people that each one of us plays a critical role in that. Each one of you plays a critical role as members of God's body. In fact, it goes on to say, we're not going to read it, but it goes on to say the, the parts of the body that are um, kind of least noticed or least recognized, they're the ones that get more glory in the end. So every part of the body is important, especially the parts that don't get a lot of recognition. You know, the people front and center, uh, the pastors, the preachers, the teachers, the worship team, um, they will get less honor in the end than the people who are behind the scenes doing the work that really drives the church with, with no praise from men. Uh, God will be the one to praise them and reward them in the end. So God uses the church to reveal his nature, this beautiful union of multiple persons living in loving fellowship with one another, which is what the church is called to be. We've seen in those scriptures. Uh, and then, um, we won't read this whole thing, but... Um, I'm going to shift now to um, God revealing the mystery of himself through the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ. So God uses the church to reveal the mystery of the gospel through Christ. Uh, in Matthew, Adams uh, references so many times, and rightfully so, uh, Jesus asks the famous question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, uh, you are Peter, and I tell you that upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, the rock that he's referring to is uh, this declaration that Peter has just professed rightly, that you are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. And that's right. I am the cornerstone of the church. And I'm going to build the church on myself, the cornerstone. Uh, The church is Jesus' plan from the beginning. It's his plan A without a plan B or any other contingency plan. His plan to build his body and to fight against the, the powers of the enemy and his evil kingdom is the church. It's his one and only plan. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 says, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. The endless treasures available to them in Christ. In some translations it says, the unsearchable riches in Christ. Verse 9, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. This is something that God was kind of waiting to reveal from the beginning. God's purpose in all this, this is the coolest part of this whole message, God's purpose in all this was to use, say it together, the church, to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Amen. There's this, uh, there's, there's this incredible uh, concept that we have to unlock here that God had this mystery of Christ, of the gospel. He knew it from all of eternity, even before Adam and Eve sinned. He knew that he was going to have to uh, institute this redemption plan to bring humanity back to himself, but he was uh, intentionally withholding this, minis- this mystery of the gospel of Christ, of the unsearchable riches in Christ. Why? So that he could use the church to be the agent, to be the vehicle, to be the, the source, to, um, to expound on the gospel, to preach the gospel, to make Christ known, to make Christ known even to the rulers and the authorities. So God uses the church to reveal the mystery of the gospel, to reveal the mystery of Christ. We are his agents. We are his vehicle to proclaim Christ and make his mysteries known. And he saved it for the church. He could have um, sent Christ, you know, right after Adam and Eve sinned and, and fell. He could have sent Christ right there, right then, at that point in time to kind of restore all things. But no, he kept it so that at the proper time, Jesus could institute the church, his body, and use the church as the way of uh, preaching the good news to the Gentiles, to all people, showing them the endless treasures available to them in Christ. So just imagine if we were to be God's church, to really be the church that God desires, what type of impact would that have on our families, in our community, in America, in the whole world? In closing, um, I want to give us two things to think about. Two things to think about. Our response in light of what God has called the church to be. The communion of the saints. Uh, The first one is to be in communion with the saints. Be in communion with the saints. It sounds simple, right? Uh, Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So essentially, uh, the author of Hebrews there is saying, y'all better keep going to church. (laughs) 
Um, but seriously, this, this is not something to do out of guilt or to punch your spiritual time card so that God says, well done, you made it to church Sunday, you're good for another week. This is not what the author is intending here. This is a sacred gathering for all time. The meeting of the church is the principal symbol of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The weekly gathering on the Lord's Day is the, the core symbol that we have as the church that testifies to the evidence of Christ being resurrected from the dead on the third day, on the Lord's Day. Now, I know this can be a very uh, sensitive topic. I don't want to um, treat it haphazardly. People have been hurt by the church in very real ways. In fact, we just had a good friend of ours visit a couple weeks ago, and he told us an incredibly sad story of uh, a church that basically told him, hey, nobody really likes you here, so it's pr you're probably not a good fit. And um, those things have happened time and time again. Again, because the church, though we are saints, we're in the progressive sanctification process, and there's still a lot of sin in us that we have to struggle to get victory over. And many times as the church, we don't act as Paul has called us to act, uh, with patience, with humility, bearing with one another in love. We're quick to be worldly. And so people um, give up on the church. So the challenge is to, to not give up on what God has called us to do. Just because it's hard and just because we mess up and just because we fall short, that doesn't mean that we don't still have this charge from God to be in communion with one another, to gather every single Sunday on the Lord's Day and celebrate the fact that Christ saved us from our sins, that He resurrected uh, Jesus from the dead, that that same power now lives in us, that works in us to continually become more like Him. Um, COVID has also complicated things immensely. Um, many people are watching online right now, and, and I, I, don't, I definitely don't want to portray the message that, oh, you got to be in church, otherwise uh, you're not in God's will. Um, if you're staying at home because of a safety reason or uh, a health concern, uh, we totally honor that and we respect that. And that's true for believers everywhere, uh, not, in, not even in this country, but the whole world. In fact, I was talking to a friend in Guatemala. They can't even go to church because the government has restricted all church gatherings. Uh, they're literally uh, prohibited from going to church. But even before COVID, we had this problem. Uh, in fact, pre-COVID, uh, it was estimated that regular church attendees would only go to church twice a month. And even when we plan worship sets, you know, all the stuff that we read about how to plan a worship set, it's like, well, when you introduce a new song, you got to do it at least like three or four times because uh, half the people are going to miss it because <laughs> now only half the people come to church on any given Sunday. Um, to that, I just want to read a strong admonition from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He uses language probably stronger than I would use. That's why I'm quoting him, <laughs> chickening out. He says, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. Um, many people think that, don't they? I say, are you quite clear about that? 
You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to the Lord's command as by being obedient. <coughs> There's a brick. What is the brick made for? It's made to build a house. Any masons in the room? Okay, I thought I'd ask. It's of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good of a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, he's not talking about classic rock lovers, y'all. I don't believe, I think he's referencing probably the uh, Second Peter uh, passage we read. I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Now, that last part is really strong. You're much to blame for the injury you do. But I think what he's saying is that to be a member of Christ's body, to say, I'm a Christian, automatically you become a member of Christ's body. So to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a member of the church. I don't really need the church. It's another oxymoron. When we become Christians, we become members of Christ's body. We're commanded to meet together as a part of his body because that's the way that we experience this fellowship, this communion that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son have had for all of eternity. And why are they doing injury to the church, these Christians who are just staying at home? Well, because we, we read in the, the First Corinthians passage, um, if you have you know, two feet, but one of them is willing to, to toe the line and the other is like, no, I don't really feel like walking today. Or you have one eye that is working well, but the other that doesn't work well, if you have these members of the body that aren't really f- fulfilling the roles and the functions that they were intended for, what do you have? You have a totally handicapped, debilitated body. And that's what we see, unfortunately, in our churches. We have, we have churches and we have some attendees, but a lot of times we're not fulfilling the role and the purpose that God called us for. What is the church supposed to look like? Well, we get a great picture in Acts, the New Testament church, Acts 2 42 through 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that incredible? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that type of community? What a powerful example of the communion of the saints when the church is really doing what we're supposed to be doing. Does your church experience look similar to this? Does our church experience look anything like this? We have to ask ourselves those questions. And if it's not, what do we need to do to step up and be the church? Uh, John, in John 14, we're not going to read it, but Jesus uh, is with the disciples, and there's this turning point where he basically unlocks this whole new category of commandments uh, that are going to come that are one another commandments. And he said, I give you a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another.
And these, I call them one anotherisms because um, I like that word. But these one anotherisms are all throughout the Bible. Um, bear with one another. Um, confess sin to one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Um, bear with one another in love. Have peace with one another. And on and on and on. Uh, there are actually a hundred different uh, one anotherisms in the New Testament. It's a great study that I would challenge each one of you to do. But how do we do that as the church? What are we not doing as the church? There's a big difference uh, between going to church and belonging to a church where you're actually involved and engaged. There's a, different, uh, a, a huge difference between being the church of Christ, being the body of Christ, and just showing up on a Sunday or tuning in at home on a Sunday and then going about your business for the rest of the week as if somehow the two things are disconnected. No, we got to take these one anotherisms uh, seriously. So what's that step for you? What's that step for me? Uh, it may be simply being more regular in your attendance. Don't be one of the statistics where you're a regular attendee that only goes to church once or twice a month. God calls us to meet together. Uh, and it's not just for your sake. Even if you think, all right, well, I'm gonna, I'll be cool at home. I can just you know, listen to a message online. Christ says, you have a role in the body. If you don't show up, they're going to be missing an eye or missing an ear or missing a, a right um, atria, uh, aorta. Dr. J, what's that chamber in your heart? Aorta. Okay, atrium is something else. Okay, so, and some of these things are undetected. So you might come and say, okay, it's a good church, but it may not be functioning because on the inside we're missing key members <laughs> that are supposed to be fulfilling their roles. So do you need to come to church more? Uh, maybe you need to join a small group. Um, the New Testament church is predominantly seen in, in the house church setting where there's a lot of intimacy and fellowship, a fellowship, and a small group is a way to kind of recapture that. We should all be in a small group. Uh, the discipleship ministry that we have uh, where we meet together and study a book about uh, basic discipleship and then uh, our challenge to then disciple someone else. I mean, that's just like Christianity 101. Uh, the Great Commission, make disciples. That's how uh, we do it in our church. If you're not in that, um, you should definitely be a part of that. That is the way that we make disciples. Um, preaching alone is not enough. Accountability, or do you need to be in an accountability group where you can uh, really be open and honest with someone, vulnerable? Uh, is there a church ministry you need to be serving in? Or a church ministry that we don't have, that you have a burden for, that you can start? Um, for us recently, one of the things God's been kind of, um, working on us to start again is hospitality, Christian hospitality, which was kind of what Emily and I were known for originally. And then um, recently, Emily actually felt the burden first. Like, we just, we're not showing Christ's love in a hospitable way like we used to. Of course, COVID has complicated that, but that's one of the things for us that we need to start doing to be more um, what the church is designed to be. Don't just go to church. Be a genuine Christian who's in communion with the saints. And then lastly, um, the second thing we can do is to be witnesses to the mystery of Christ. We already looked at that from the verse in Ephesians. God saved the special uh, big reveal that the mysteries of the unsearchable riches of Christ would be made known through the church. That was his plan. And even the rulers in the heavenly places, even the angels, long to look on such things to understand the mysteries of the gospel. The angels are perfect creative beings, 
that can't understand grace and forgiveness and the love of God like we can. So our charge, um, Jesus' final pep talk to the disciples, Acts 1-8, before he was taken away up to heaven, he ascended. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our mission. The communion of the saints is, is our place to, to be filled, strengthened, equipped, recharged spiritually. That's the communion of the saints. The work of the church is to be this, to be witnesses, to make disciples, to do it here in Fort Smith, in Arkansas, in the U.S., to the ends of the earth. That's the work of the church. How can we be in communion with the saints more? How can we be more effective witnesses for Christ? Some of us maybe just need to be witnesses at all in general. Just talk to people about Christ. Share with them the incredible riches of the mercies and the glories of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to study the church. Uh, such a, a weighty topic what a beautiful design that you created what a beautiful thing that you instituted the body of believers being built up as living stones to form a spiritual household lord help us to be the members of the body that you've called us to be convict us lord where we've grown apathetic or lazy where we're not doing our part to be your body you've given us each a unique calling a unique purpose, a unique destiny, unique gifts, a unique skill set to use for your glory, to build up the church, to use for your glory, to make disciples, to use for your glory, to be your witnesses in our families, in our homes, in our communities, and to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted above every single nation that you'd use us, your church, in every place, in every part of the world right now, people gathering together uh, all over the globe. We pray that you would use us, your church, to accomplish your will, to glorify yourself, and that ultimately we would see the fulfillment of that like we see in Revelations. All believers, the church, from all parts of uh, the world, from all different points throughout time and history, worshiping together as one, gathered around your throne, uh, a multitude that no one can count, worshiping you, praising you, giving you the honor and the glory that you deserve. Help us to be the church that you want. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing um, two songs right now.